Greetings everyone and thank you for tuning in to another edition of A Healthy Obsession, the podcast covering soccer culture from around the world. My name's Adam Thelwell, the show is brought to you by Small Goal Soccer. On this week's show there's only one place to go really and that's down to Buenos Aires, Argentina to talk to Argentinian football expert Sam Kelly about the passing of Diego Maradona. Sam has written for ESPN and many more outlets and hosts the world famous Hand of Pod podcast. We're going to be looking at Maradona's life on and off the pitch, Argentinian football culture and what a response has been like to Diego Maradona's death. We appreciate everyone tuning in and we are going to get into the show now. Cheers. I'm Sam Kelly. Um, I grew up in southwest England, uh, went to university in Manchester in England. I'm a Man United fan. Um, I imagine it's a football podcast, isn't it? So people will want to know that. Um, And I met a young lady online when I was uh, 19 and went to visit her in, in her home, which was in Argentina. Uh, And although we didn't uh, stay together for well beyond a a couple of years, um, I felt like I had kind of unfinished business with with Argentina and especially with Buenos Aires. So I, uh, and I didn't want to stay in England forever. So I I moved over here uh, 10 and a half years ago in April 2010. um, And I've met a much nicer young lady and and haven't ended up going back, basically. (laughs) when I first came here, or, or before I first came here, uh, I started blogging about Argentine football. Um, I, I really liked um, just football anyway, and whenever I went to a new country, I'd always look into the history of, of the game. I'd try to get to matches. And so when I came here, it was, it was natural. You know, I, I got my then-girlfriend, was a, a big River Plate fan, so she took me to a game. Um, and the, the blogging sort of started after we broke up as, I guess, a way of... Uh, trying to throw myself into a different project and take my mind off it. And it snowballed. I ended up getting, um, getting involved with when Saturday comes. I still write for them occasionally now about Argentine stuff uh, in the UK. And for about, ooh, I mean, I don't know. It's difficult to say when it officially ended, but for just under 10 years, I would say I was um, ESPN FC or Soccernet, as it was called when I started writing for it. Uh, I was their sort of man in South America, um, and then one of them, and in South America, when when Tim Vickery and a couple of others uh, joined as well. Um, these days, I don't do so much football writing, and I still write occasionally, as I say, for when Saturday comes, and I still do occasional podcast and, and radio appearances, which I like doing. Um, I'm now a, a proofreader, um, training to be a copy editor as well. So if anybody wants any text, sport text especially, uh, editing, then then get in touch. Um, but the main, my main contribution remains. Um, the now just over 10-year-old podcast, uh, Hand of Pot, which, as the name suggests, is um, a, a weekly take on Argentine football, particularly Argentine domestic football, which doesn't really get enough coverage um, in English. Yeah, if you've got a team, you said that uh, I think your girlfriend supports River Plate. Is that the case for you as well? You'd support River Plate? Well, my, my ex supports River Plate. And okay. so they became kind of, because I, I went to see them, you know, I think each of the three times that I came over to visit her, we, we went to at least one match together. 
And so they became my, like by default, my Argentine club. Um, and the, for the first couple of years after I moved here, for the for a couple of years, definitely for the first year after I moved here, um, I went to nearly all of their, their home games. Um, and then they, it, funnily enough, after relegation, after they got relegated in 2011, which mm. some listeners might be able to remember, it was a huge story all over the world. Um, the tickets got really, really hard to come by. It, it was as if everybody wanted to kind of show their um their, their their passion and their support for the club um and once it got more difficult to start going to matches you know then they, they came back up the year later and uh i was able to get into the match where they secured promotion that was amazing um once once they came back up and and this, the era of this enormous success that they've had now in the last six years uh began um it didn't get any easier to get into matches <laughs> and through not going to matches all the time um i've kind of faded a little bit so now i'm i'm still a sympathizer i would say of, of river but i don't really consider myself a fan of them anymore they're probably my favorite argentine team but it's a fairly weak kind of uh, favoritism yeah and i suppose you, you have to remain somewhat diplomatic right and uh, somewhat neutral throughout the process of writing about argentinian football yeah yeah you do and and also the other thing funnily enough it was kind of an, an encounter with with boca juniors that, that that did it as well because in 20 15 that second round tie in the Copa Libertadores with the pepper spray um incident it kind of put me off in a way put me off the Super Clasico as as a thing because until then Super Clasicos were great fun I've been to two both at Rivers Stadium um they were you know really good fun they were the media over blew it all a bit but it, it wasn't it was rarely anything just downright borderline dangerous and, and mm. unpleasant and that really turned it into something and turned the whole discourse around them it, it much more toxic um and so that sort of started to think well you know if i'm not that bothered about the rivalry and and i kind of don't want them to play each other other than you know professionally obviously it was the one time i could actually sell articles about the <laughs> domestic game um then th- then how bothered am i about the club and um and also as i say i'm a, I'm a man united fan and i started to sort of think well River, I enjoy it when they win, and I, I like seeing them do that. But when they lose, it doesn't spoil my weekend in the same <laughs> way as as it does when United put in an absolute stinker of a performance. Um, and so I kind of that was when I started to think that maybe support wasn't quite the right word for for my feelings for them. Yeah, more of a an armchair fan, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, so we and got there are other teams who I like watching as well. And I mean, ultimately, like if I was watching an Argentine Cup game let's say it, it's not happened and it's difficult to imagine it happening because of the golfing class. But if you're watching an Argentine cup game and River were a goal down to a team from the third division or something with, you know, only stoppage time to play, I'd probably be sitting there and there'd be at least part of me thinking, oh, I do hope they hang on because yeah. this would be an amazing story. You know, I'd, like, I'd want to see the upset. Whereas if I'm watching an FA cup game and United are a goal down to a third division side, which is sadly not so unimaginable these days, uh, I'd, I'd very much be wanting them to still overturn it. Yeah. So, so we, we got a lot of American listeners that they love traveling for football, obviously not at the moment, but we got a lot of people that go to Europe and go for the match going experience. I personally have never been to Argentina. So what could you expect from going down to Argentina for a match and what, what's the culture and the experience like summed up? Um, I actually, for a, a several years, um, had a sort of little mini business on the side where I, I took foreigners, Western Europeans and Americans for the most part, mm. uh, to matches down here. Um, 
And one of the things that, that was pretty much universal from, from both sets was that it's a lot louder and it's a lot more in the bone, so to speak, um, down here. It, it, the, the stadiums are crumbling, with the exception of Estudiantes de la Plata, who've got a beautiful brand new one. Um, they're not in the same state that they are in Europe. Um, the whole build-up around the match, it's much less of a sort of choreographed event, especially I've, I've only ever been to the States for two weeks, and that was to um, Alaska. So I haven't exactly had the full-on typical American experience, and I certainly didn't do any sport mm. there. But um, what I gather is, is that the whole match day experience in the US, regardless of which sport you're talking about, is a little bit more choreographed and a bit more yeah. polished and, and shiny and lots of pre-match entertainment and all that kind of stuff. You don't get any of that in Argentina. Uh, you don't get the match programs that, that listeners in the UK will be obviously very familiar with. Mm. Um, it's very much, you're basically turning up, sitting around, waiting for the match to start, and the match starts, and that's what you do, and then the match finishes. Uh, and yet, it is lived so much more intensely um, that you almost feel like if there was any of that other stuff that, that we do in our countries, um, there wouldn't really be anywhere to fit it. <laughs> uh, so, so it, it's from from the off pitch point of view, it it, it can be a, a real assault on the senses and and adrenaline and, and and people tend to love it. On the pitch, uh, when people are actually watching the matches, I've I've had a lot of people turn around to me partway through the game and say, first of all, that there is a lot less diving than they assumed there would be in mm. the Argentine league, given I guess the stereotypical view of how the dirty Latinos like to yeah, play. Yeah. Lots of cheating um, going on, apparently. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And secondly, the, the tackling is a lot harder. Again, the, the, they have the impression that, that, that these guys can't take a kick and, and that they'll go down at the slightest touch. Um, but in fact, yeah, the, the tackling here can be absolutely brutal and referees will hand out yellow cards for things that would be straight reds in the big European leagues. They'll hand out nothing at all for things that would be a comfortable yellow getting on for an orange card, if you like, in, in, in the big European leagues. Um, so it, it's a, in many respects, it's a different game. And obviously the quality of the football itself is not anything like as high, unless you're watching pretty much, you know, River, maybe these days, Racing, Lanús, Boca as well. Um, River on a, on a good day, I should say, on a, on a bad day, they can be as bad as anybody else. Um, and that's because, you know, all of the best players are already, by definition, not playing in Argentina anymore. Um, so we, we have to rely on a, a generation of fairly decent, interesting-looking young new managers coming through who, who, are, who are getting good ideas now um, and, and have good ideas about training and tactics, which is starting to rub off on some of the clubs. But there is obviously a big golfing class for to, to the leagues in in northern europe in mls perhaps a little bit less so uh from what i gather and from the very few mls games that i actually managed to watch um down here um but obviously there are certain aspects like just the institutional stability um that that clubs in mls have compared with the constant chopping and changing and never quite knowing what's going on next here. The economic stability, obviously that anybody mm. in the United States has compared with, um, compared with people in Argentina over the last <laughs> well, 20 years or so, at least yeah. um, makes for more settled players, more, 
players who are happier where they are. And that obviously has a, a knock-on effect on the pitch as well. So while I wouldn't necessarily say there's a golfing class in MLS, uh, I'd be interested to see what might happen if MLS sides joined the Copa Libertadores, for instance. Mm. I mean, the travelling times would be ridiculous, so it wouldn't be workable. But if it were to happen, I suspect that at least for the first few years, Argentine sides, you know, their, their dominance, relatively speaking, in recent years in that competition, I don't think would be um, uh, challenged. Um, but it, it's it's a different experience rather than a lower or higher quality experience is what I tend to tell people. Yeah, and I think that there's there's definitely some of that flavor with with some of the, especially the newer clubs up here in the MLS. So like LAFC specifically have got very South American flavor, you know, with the the drums and sort of support support culture. Game is definitely uh, more embodied of South South American style than a European style, which a lot of the older major league soccer teams would tend to go for the sort of European style chanting. And I've noticed that more recently the clubs are going for a bit more of a South American, specifically Argentinian flavor, I think. Yeah. And trying to appeal, I guess, to, to, to that demographic that mm. until the last few years, from what I gather, MLS hasn't particularly been, been that good at picking up and also trying to appeal, I guess, to, as well to the players that I, I found Atlanta United's model in the last few years, really interesting where they, they were quite, um, open and honest about the fact that they wanted to act almost as a stepping stone for Europe for players mm. like Miguel Almiron. Um, and so you end up getting some potentially fantastic players. You know, Piti Martinez mm-hmm. um, was was brilliant. I know, I know that he hasn't done too well up there, um, relatively speaking. But, you know, he, he if that gamble had come off and, and if he'd been the replacement for Almiron, um, then Atlanta would be laughing right now. And also, of course, you know, I'm aware that they... Um, screwed up the the replacement of Gerardo Martino as well to that <laughs> yeah. but, uh, <laughs> Didn't um, go well. but it's it's an interesting model to, for for both on the pitch and off the pitch to try to follow and, and I think it's one that's that's going to make MLS um interesting to to watch and to follow I, I as I say I, I can't watch it very often but I, I do really like reading about the development of MLS because I'm a bit of a nerd about the history of football and how it's grown in different places and watching MLS at the moment and reading about what's going on is kind of like seeing all of that stuff happening in real time now, mm. which was being thought about elsewhere like a hundred years ago or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Well, we have this conversations not only on the show, but just with different people I know in football that you know, soccer here is so young still that what you just described is a really good, interesting way of putting it. It's like, there's no history between these clubs. A lot of them are, you know, born a year or two ago, or even the older quote unquote MLS teams are 20 years old and yeah. it takes time to build that history and like grow the league sustainably. Cause otherwise it doesn't, if a club's not financially viable anymore, they'll collapse because running these teams is not cheap. And as wages increase and, especially now with no one going in the stadiums, loss, loss of revenue, apparently major league soccer numbers on TV are not great at the moment either, which if they're not great in a pandemic, that's not really a good sign. It's just not much going on. Mm. So it's interesting to see the, the sustainable aspects of the league on some of the different pieces that they're taking from different clubs around the world as well, whether that is from a business standpoint or a cultural perspective as well. Yeah. And, and also just seeing it done, consciously is not really the right works it's not as if you know football associations in the rest of the world haven't put thought into what they're doing but but seeing the game that they're trying to develop it and they know that they're trying to develop it whereas Mm -hmm. in the leagues with seriously old traditions and leagues you know in england in the netherlands in argentina which is the, Mm -hmm. the third oldest league in the world 
Italy and Spain and so on. It just developed organically. It right. became popular. Nobody at any point went, right, we're going to try to sell this game to the masses. Now. It <laughs> yeah. was just people went. Um, and in, in the United States, obviously, you've got a very well-developed sporting culture, uh, which has not been based around football at all. Uh, or rather, it has partly been based around football. Yeah, yeah. It's just that uh, it's not the same sport. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, it's, it, I, I find it very interesting to see how they try to, um, how, they, how they do that. Yeah, no, and also, like, it's, it comes up on this show, it's pretty, like, hot topic on this show a lot, is the promotion relegation issue is, like, a lot of people that enjoy watching soccer, football, they'll watch and you get to an end of season in Major League Soccer and your team's bottom of the pile and there's just nothing to play for for three or four games at the end of the season. And it, anyone that's been watching football anywhere else in the world that supports maybe a Premier League team or a La Liga team, all of a sudden is like this exciting end to the season if your team's down at the bottom with Major League Soccer just sort of like pieces out. So I think it's definitely not a problem that's easy to solve, but it is a big chunk that's missing here is having promotion and relegation because you do have a lot of people that are... Uh, soccer snobs isn't the right word, but they maybe say, oh, I'm not watching that because I only watch European soccer. Or So, so yeah. they're like shy away from watching it because there isn't that that pyramid or the opportunity for teams to go up and down. So I think it's growing though. I think it's it just takes time and it takes a little bit of um, the, the people in the right jobs and positions in the US Soccer Federation to do, to do some of those, uh, to make some of those changes. Yeah, and also I guess to talk investors into, you know, please put, tens or hundreds of billions of dollars into our team even though you might end up with a second division side in a couple of years time <laughs> yeah it's not it's not attractive is it <laughs> yeah cool so let, let's get on to uh, the, the other hot topic at, at the moment um sad, sad news coming out of argentina uh, last week was the passing of diego maradona so the, the reason i reached out to you originally just to kind of get some feedback and, and see what the the mood is like and the, the streets of argentina are like at the moment with the news of of one of their heroes passing well, for the most part, quite quiet down here because we've had more of a lockdown than I gather has been imposed by your um, president mm. in inverted commas up there. Mm. Um, so in Buenos Aires, it, it's been, in a way, I'm not in the best place to gauge the, the reaction on the street because I've barely been on the street. I've been keeping to my flat. Uh, but obviously in, in another way, I'm, I'm in quite a good place because I've been paying attention to stuff. Um, mm. There was, for example, uh, a, a large-ish gathering around uh, the obelisk in central Buenos Aires, which anybody who watched the international news reports on, was it Wednesday last week, will will have seen. Um, that's the sort of traditional gathering place for fans when their team wins a big trophy. Uh, when Argentina reached the final of the 2014 World Cup, the streets were absolutely flooded there. And I think that had Maradona... Well, no, I don't think... I mean it's virtually certain that, that had Maradona died in non-pandemic times, um, that gathering would have been half a million strong. Mm. You know, it's not at all difficult to imagine something of a similar scale to when Argentina reached the World Cup final. Um, as it was, it, it was much smaller. It was still enough for me to get various WhatsApp messages from people in other countries who'd never been to Buenos <laughs> Aires going, wow, that's a lot of people out. And, <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course it's a lot of people, but also it actually isn't that many people. <laughs> um, his, his body was lying in state at the presidential um, office building. I always want to say presidential residence, but he doesn't actually live there. He just works from there in, in the center of Buenos Aires. It was planned for three days. It ended up being one day because the family uh, got word from the, um, the 
cemetery that that uh, they needed to get there before sundown if they wanted to bury him that day and there had been some miscommunication with the president mm. uh between them and and how long they were wanting to put him there for uh so that caused a bit of a um quite some fuss when when they announced to all of these people who were queuing for about three or four miles outside the building oh by the way you lot aren't going to be able to come in because they're, they're taking him in like half an hour's time um so it was a very argentine kind of send-off in that respect uh, chaotic and uh <laughs> disorganized um but deeply passionate which is a lot of the stuff of course that that maradona uh lived his life by um and and in the days since, I mean, at 10 p.m. that night, there was uh, 10 obviously being a shirt number. There, there was applause from balconies across the city. We we heard it here as well, where we are. Um, and yeah, it's it, it's just been very very weird as 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 an English person. Obviously, I'm not sort of. And also, I was two in 1986 mm-hmm. to to give you some idea of sort of. Uh, my age so it, he's not a figure who I grew up surrounded by and given my age I would have obviously if I'd been born in Argentina I, I'd have been more aware of him mm. but I still wouldn't have actually I'd barely be able to remember him play you know um, and so it, it's been interesting to see the outpouring of emotion but even for me it was kind of weird to wake up on Thursday knowing that the world no longer contains this this figure, you know. Mm. Um, and having written, having spent such a large part of my life um, interested in Argentina and, and writing about Argentine football, it was really weird to think that the the figure that the world no longer contains is is the figure who arguably embodies it more than anybody else. Um, it's very strange. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of the same as you, same age. So I, I didn't grow up watching Maradona except for, you know, through going back and, and watching different highlights and things like that. And what I found interesting, especially talking to some friends that are English over the course of the last couple of weeks is, uh, excuse me, the last week was a lot of people seem to really dislike him when I was growing up because of the handball and because of the, you know, like, like it was against England. So there was always that like sort of sentiment around it, but that, that seems to have vanished, especially even more recently before he died, but especially this last week or so, it's just been uh, very much uh, like adoration and pouring. Uh, like a lot of that sort of dislike seemed to have vanished from quite a lot of people. I don't know if you noticed that too. Yeah. I mean, well here, there was never really the dislike anyway. And I mean, I've obviously only been in touch with people back home Mm. um, via, via messaging and stuff, but it's quite an interesting one because my, neither of my parents are really massively into football, but my dad's best mate was, and I remember chatting with him while I was at uni. So by this point I'd already, I'd I'd come to Argentina once. I think it was probably between my first and second visits. And so we were talking a bit about Argentine football and what I thought of it. And, um, he he was the first person who was old enough to remember the hand of God and, and to have felt cheated by it because in 1986, he'd have been 33, 34. Mm. Um, but also to say to me, I've always blamed Shilton for it <laughs> because Shilton's six inches taller than Maradona yeah. and he's allowed to use his hands. So how was he unable to outjump him? Um, and since that, I've kind of, I've always... Um, I've, I've found a few other English people who who, who felt the same way, um, and yeah, it, it, but it is uh, it, it's been interesting to see the sort of the chilling in in that sort of more angry attitude, and I think part of it was 
probably the 2010 World Cup, which having experienced it in Argentina, it happened two months after I moved there. Uh, I thought was was horrible. I'll, I'll never forgive the Argentine FA for basically throwing away what I thought was a very good chance for Argentina to win the World Cup by mm. giving the manager's job to Diego Maradona for that when he, he just simply was not a manager. No. But obviously a lot of people outside Argentina particularly really enjoyed watching Argentina in that World Cup because they were so just balls to the wall. Yeah, uh, You know, yeah. Just, just, just everything. Throw it all. Throw, throw, I, I was last week reminded of the um the quarterfinal defeat against germany and i remembered my own thinking at the time was when i saw the lineups was he's fielding a one-man midfield against this team (laughs) and i thought maybe i'm misremembering this maybe this was you know because i spent most of that tournament angry with maradona and really trying to convince people in my local and and on the websites that i was writing on they are going to get demolished by the first decent team they they come up against and so i thought maybe i'm misremembering this let's look up the lineup uh, for, for that match and no it was it was Javier Mascherano in midfield and then mm. five forwards in front of him <laughs> um, and, and so I can fully understand why obviously why neutrals and why people who don't particularly care whether or not Argentina do well at tournaments uh, would find that tremendously entertaining um, and I think that that was in, in, in the eyes of the rest of the world uh, and certainly in, in the eyes of the English because let's face it the rest of the world doesn't have anywhere near the same problem with Maradona anyway <laughs> right. as, as the English have always had since 1986 uh, but in the eyes of the English I think that's probably one of the things uh, that really helped to start pushing his reputation back the other way and into this no actually he is a footballing legend and you know ironically it is by far the least impressive thing he ever did <laughs> in in his uh in his footballing, you know, whether, whether as a player or as a manager in his, in his career. As you said, though, that, that style, just the, the way that they went about that tournament was like the epitome of Maradona's style, of like how he would go about doing things, right? It's just balls to the wall, to hell with the rest, stick all the forwards on and go for it sort of attitude. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, just um, very little rationality. Um, it, it's interesting because, I mean, obviously he was a, highly intelligent as a player, but wasn't able to, to to put across the same ideas. I wasn't able to see it from the viewpoint of somebody who who was who, whose job was to stand on the sidelines and direct. Um, one of my f- favourite stories, which I think best illustrates the way that that the Argentine FA threw that World Cup away, was the story which was never denied by any of the people in question, uh, which was that on the day that the squad list had to be submitted to FIFA ahead of the tournament. Uh, Maradona woke up and ha- having just had a dream and so he phoned Carlos Bilardo who was the manager in 1986 and who was Maradona's sort of advisor in 2010 and was helping him out with a bunch of, of the decisions and stuff he phones Carlos Bilardo and he says I've, I've had this dream and I had a dream of it was us winning the World Cup with me in my managerial suit and the only face I can remember from the players who were on the pitch was Ariel Garcia Ariel Garcia is a centre-back. I think he was playing for Argentinos Juniors at the time. He was probably 31 or 32 or something. And I mean, mm-hmm. just barely ever played outside Argentina and Uruguay. You know, he's not an international class centre-back. And Bilardo's response, apparently, was, well, it's an omen. You've got to call him up. <laughs> he'll, he'll be a good luck charm for us. So one of the 23 spots at a World Cup squad went to this guy on the basis that the manager had had a dream about him the previous <laughs> night. Um, and I think that that kind of 
encapsulates it. But it, but there's an interesting sort of uh, treating him a little bit more seriously as, as that kind of figure. Um, uh, one of the more interesting quotes or, or memories that I had of reading his autobiography was that there's a point where he says that what he would re- the player he'd really have liked to be is the number five, the more deep lying playmaker. Mm. Um, I mean, th- these days, a lot of the time, and the number five in Argentine football is just a destroyer. But Maradona makes the point that a lot of them, in the, especially in the 50s and 60s, and, and still to an extent when he started playing in the late 70s, um, were these more cerebral types who would, like, I guess, a modern day kind of regista sort of figure mm-hmm. um, who's directing the play from deep. And he said, what he said in the, I don't know whether it's false modesty or not, or whether he meant it sincerely, but in his autobiography, he says that he never had the vision um, to, to direct the game like that. It was as if they were the number, a really good number five was sort of seeing everything from an Eagle's eye view of the pitch. and was able to see where everything was. Um, and I wonder whether that sort of lack of vision tied in a little bit with, with his lack of ability to, to be a strategist mm. from the sideline. Um, I might just be reading too much into it, but it, it, it was interesting that that World Cup, although it ruined Argentina's chances, I think I'm convinced it, it added a few years to Maradona's life because for much of the late 90s and, and throughout the 2000s, he was in a very, very bad state of health, obviously. Mm. You know, you, we've all seen the tabloid stories, the, the gastric bypass surgery, the enormous amounts of uh, cocaine that he was taking mm. um, and, and all the rest of it. Um, and the one one of the things that Tim Vickery has has said um, when he when when we've talked, and that I know he likes to say on on other uh, appearances as well, is that Maradona was an addict, but his first addiction was winning. Um, and getting back into football, even though he never deserved to be anywhere near the Argentine national team manager's job, certainly not for a World Cup, ended up. I think getting him back to an extent on as close a thing to the straight and narrow as Diego Maradona <laughs> was ever going to be. Um, and after that, for, for, the, for these last, you know, what's turned out to be the last 10 years of his life, really, since that World Cup, he's looked happier, um, fitter up until the last year or so, uh, when he started to become noticeably more frail. And, you know, it wasn't really a, it was a shock, but not a surprise, I guess would be the cliche to use when, when the news came out last week. Um, but but he he seemed just happier in himself most of the time, um, and so it, it's it's interesting that his life was that tied into football that even though he obviously wasn't going to be able to be one percent of the manager that he was a player, um, just being around football again seemed to kind of elevate him for for that last decade of his life. And I don't know if you saw it or not, but it was it was out relatively recently. I think about a year ago when he was it was a documentary covering his time at um, Dorados in Mexico um, in Sinaloa. And I find it really interesting that he was when he was managing that a lot of the, of course it's television, but a lot of the the team talks and the pregame was so much just around his persona. It was never really like, I know that they wouldn't show too much of strategizing or actual tactics, but he was just going in there and sort of giving him a, a, a pep talk of like cheerleading. And like, it was very spiritually based. And I found it very interesting and made me think about what you just said is like, how much of him from a managerial standpoint was strategy or was it his, was the skill so much based off of, uh, just like raw power and personality and character. Is that why he was 
even in positions to get these jobs and it made him happy because you know it was a leadership style position yeah i mean as a motivator he was obviously superb he, he mm. came into to gimnasia la plata um at the start of the 2019 20 season i think i'm remembering this correctly at any rate when he came in um they were deep in in the relegation mess so relegation argentina is worked out over a number of seasons there's an average at a table where they divide the number of points you've won by the number of matches you've played so they knew at the start of the season that they were pretty much not guaranteed but that it was going to be a real uphill struggle to to not be relegated at the end of the season um and he came in and they lost their first like maybe their record after eight matches was like drawn one, lost seven or something like that. This, this is, you know, off the top of my head, but it, mm. it was terrible. Um, and then they started winning. And it was, I mean, first of all, a lot of the defeats early on were because they had, I seem to remember, a really, really unfortunate uh, fixture list early on. They were playing like four of Argentina's big five in the first six matches. And then the other two teams they were playing were, you know, teams who won the league in the last, few years or something like that um so it was horrendously unlucky and also a number of the matches were like it's level right up until like the 93rd minute and then the referee gives a dodgy penalty to the other team and and i think the only match that they lost by more than one goal in that whole spell uh was a 2-0 or 3-1 defeat to river plate or something and even that was a little bit against the run of play Mm. Um, and then once they started winning they didn't seem to stop winning. And it wasn't him making the tactical decisions. In fact, it was his, his assistant, Sebastian Mendes, who, who um, resigned last, last week. I'm guessing he, he didn't fancy doing the job without Diego. So Gimnasia have got some rebuilding to do themselves now. Um, but what it was obvious was that the players were just were prepared to run through walls for him, which, you know, I mean, you, you, you mentioned the reaction at, at Dorados. Imagine that multiplied by the factor that pretty much the entire squad is Argentine and have grown up worshipping this guy. I mean, his his motivation is just, it was off the charts. It it was, it was remarkable. All right, it's halftime. We wanted to give a quick break. Sam was so generous with his time today. So halftime, grab yourself a drink and we are going to get back into it. Do you think he was like that as a teammate as well? Would you summarize him as, as that kind of leader on the pitch as well? Not just from a skill perspective, but. uh, Oh, definitely. uh, Yeah. yeah. It's, I, I think it's, it's the most, visible difference between uh, him and Messi. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I defend Messi and, and I, I largely don't think that the um, conversation about who's the better player is, is as important or as interesting as, as, as a lot of people uh, like to make out. But while Messi does have um, clearly a, a position in the dressing room, whichever team you're talking about, whether it's Barcelona or Argentina. And, and while he is clearly highly thought of, mm-hmm. Maradona's was much more visual and, and was much more obvious on the pitch. Um, and and the, the, the classic example is in the 1986 World Cup final where West Germany had managed to pull themselves back into the game. I think Argentina were 2-0 up and West Germany pulled it back to 2-2. And after the second goal goes in, you can see a couple of his teammates slumping shoulders a bit and being like how have we managed to we have one hand on the trophy how, how, how has this escaped us and Maradona going around and come on guys breathe slow down calm down relax I've got this we've got this um and you know a few minutes later that just beautiful dummy the way he let the ball 
run across his body with four yeah. German markers around him and That's then pick out Bonro Chaga for a chance he just couldn't miss. Um, was was fantastic um and and so i, I think that yeah the, the the leadership was was already there and it was the ability to accept you know his he became in the public eye too much of a um an, an outsized figure and it ended up crushing him in many ways mm-hmm. off the pitch as, as a person but when he was on the pitch he knew that that was him and he was able to use it to the advantage of his teammates and to say, if we lose, this is on me. Hmm. You don't need to worry about it. Just keep doing your job. Keep doing what we're doing. We're going to win this still. Um, and that, that, that was why, I mean, I, I've, I've heard a lot of people who, who remember both tournaments a lot more clearly than me um, suggest that the really impressive part of his playing career was the 1990 World Cup mm. and dragging Argentina to the final in that tournament. <laughs> um, when they were nowhere near as good as they were in 1986 um, and getting up to take the, I think it's the fourth penalty in the semi-final shootout against Italy after not having a particularly great game, although obviously it was replayed on the telly here a few days ago <laughs> um, and, and it wasn't as terrible as, as, um, as I'd heard about it being either, the bits that I saw of it. Um, but, you know, the, the strength of character to after not, after not having had by any measure the best game of his career to still stand up and take such an important penalty um, to send Argentina through was, um, yeah, it, it did underline that as well. Do you think that characters like Maradona on, on and off the pitch, which you just described about him being the leader on the pitch, but also the way that he was off the pitch through the news a lot, do you think that characters like that are fading out of football now or do you think it's just things have become a little bit too PR friendly that someone like that can exist in football anymore? Um, I'd be interested to see how he would get on in, in modern football. Mm. On the one hand, I mean, it, it, it's an awkward one because on, uh, lots of people are, are, are going to say, well, you know, modern day managers wouldn't have any time at all for, for his antics and, and for his uh, his his addictions and whatnot, but on the other hand, a modern day manager might have helped him to not get addicted in the first place. If you see what I mean, yeah. um, I, I I tend to think that the, the there probably isn't actually a lack of characters in the game today, but what is the case is that everything is much more everybody's image is much more stage managed um, to such a degree that we just don't hear about them because none of that stuff goes on in public um, <laughs> these days. And, and also, you know, I mean, he was, he was a character in his own time as well. That's, and it's one of the things that, that I think we forget when, when we talk about, I'm trying to think of some other examples, but you know, Gaza or Rodney Marsh, yeah. um, Garincha for the uh, very old Brazilian listeners that I'm sure you have in significant <laughs> yeah. numbers. You know, the, the, these kind of guys stood out for this in, in their own time. And they stand out to us now because they're the ones whose stories get remembered and get passed down. Um, and I mean, it, I'll admit that it's difficult to think of too many examples in, in today's game. But, you know, Mario Balotelli, for instance, yeah. the top of my head, mm-hmm. um, is, is going to be somebody who in... In 20 years' time, I'm just wondering whether there'll be two people sitting, podcasting and saying, why don't we have characters like Mario Balotelli <laughs> in, in the game today? Um, and thinking, I mean, is, is that, I don't know, is, is it the most important thing? 
or um, would you rather have astonishing players to talk about? But it is, it's definitely something, it's definitely a facet that I think is cost messy in, in terms of that, that comparison. Uh, he seems like, a, to me, just a, largely a, a normal guy who happens to have become one of the wealthiest sports person who've ever lived because of the era that he's uh, been playing in and, and because of just how good he is. Um, and he's obviously quite a boring person. Mm-hmm. But I think I'd rather have that than somebody who I really would not want to be stuck in a lift with. <laughs> it's funny because I, I was arguing this uh, with a friend of mine the, uh, the last week, basically, that you know, he said that Maradona isn't as good as everyone makes out simply because the story and the hype around him is more than the actual skill. And, the, and I argued it. I'm like, that's... Uh, it's crazy, you know, go back and watch Maradona playing. Neither of us grew up watching him live or experiencing mm. a live, but so go back and watch what he did, watch what he did with the football. And my, the guy I was talking to is basically saying, well, like the story is, and the persona is bigger than his actual skill set. I, I, I don't think that many people would say that, but maybe that's some common opinion. I think they both enhance the other though. Mm. I mean, I, 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 on the introduction to, to my own podcasts, which I guess we'll talk about in a, in a little bit. Mm. Um, last week, I, I made the point um, that what we all want to believe about the world or what a lot of people want to believe about the world is that it's a meritocracy and, and that if you're good enough at something, then you can get there. But the fact is that there are millions of kids who are born into levels of poverty that you or I would find unimaginable mm. um, you know, every year and who have some god-given talent and never quite managed to make it out of there and that's i think what what really is inspiring about maradona's story is is the fact that he found this talent after being born in in a slum in a country like argentina in in the the middle of the 20th century in a region like latin america which many people just can't ever never manage to escape from that um and he had such an immense talent and also the character and the drive and the good fortune um, to be able to use that to get out of it. And, and we want to believe that, oh, that a, a, anybody can do that. And, and so what, I mean, the story isn't as impressive because his skill was so great or his skill isn't as impressive because the story is it overshadows it, depending on your point of view. Um, and I think that th- they, they both enhance each other. And it's another reason why, regardless of who is the better player, um, why Messi's never going to have quite the same sway over the popular imagination because he ultimately came from a, a reasonably comfortable, like lower middle-class background from what I gather. You know, like if he hadn't been amazing at football, he'd have just lived a fairly unremarkable life, but not in any particular poverty and not in any particular wealth either. Uh, whereas Maradona's life, if he hadn't been amazing at football, would have been, you know, to quote, somebody or other nasty brutish and short probably um and unfortunately that's that's still the case for too many people Mar- Mar- maradona gives you the illusion that you can get out of it um but that doesn't mean that your mate doesn't need to go and look up a lot of youtube videos and decide whether he really wasn't that skillful or not well and, and the way you just described it is like the odds are firmly stacked against you if you're coming from that kind of environment background and, and the story is what the rags to riches story is amazing everyone loves it right but yeah like the the actual odds of you being able to pull up what maradona pulled off and do it at the level that he did it 
it's like you said, the, one, the two sides of that story make up the whole of him being this like great character, but also having uh, the skill on the pitch as well. Exactly, yeah. And, and the two sides of the story are, are very well encapsulated in that 1986 World Cup quarterfinal, right. the Estadio which we all remember. Every, everybody always goes straight to the goals, but, but there's also the um, really amazing uh, last-ditch goal line clearance John Barnes crosses the ball and Gary Lineker is coming in at the far post the goalkeeper gets nowhere near it and, and Lineker's just got a simple stooping header to, to nod in and to make it 2-2 and take the game to extra time and then suddenly just out of absolutely nowhere Julio Alaticochea appears underneath Lineker Lineker gets his head on it as he thinks he needs to and Alaticochea's head somehow even though Lineker's only six inches off the goal line um, Olatico Chea gets his head in between them and sends the ball back and out for over the crossbar and out for a corner and you think from, from the point of view of somebody just analysing Maradona's legacy you know from, from, from Argentina's point of view in, in the World Cup that's, it takes those moments to win a game for the team mm. if we're analysing Maradona's legacy with that perhaps Olatico Chea doesn't manage to pull that off it had nothing to do with Maradona at all England equalise something happens in extra time and Argentina never get beyond the quarterfinals of that World Cup but and, and I've heard people saying, you know, that things like that are an example of, of the good fortune that you need mm. to achieve greatness. But really, the good fortune that, that Maradona needed to achieve greatness was all of the good fortune that he needed to get discovered in the first place, uh, to be born with this talent and to then, you know, go on to by the age of whatever he was, like 22 or 23, become Argentinos Juniors top goal scorer of all time um, and then get two world record transfer fees. Um, all of the stuff that he did with Napoli, you know, Napoli, I mean, he, he could have gone to the Juventus and won that stuff and everybody would have been like, well, so, but the point is if he'd gone to Juventus, they'd have probably won a lot more besides, because if you can win two Serie A titles, two UEFA Cups with, yeah. with Napoli, mm -hmm. who'd never won a title before in their, in their history, um, any team from the South of Italy, um, it's it's absolutely remarkable and yeah of course it adds to the story but it it also um to me at least it it, it doesn't detract at all from the, the skill levels and, and and from the greatness as a player what do you think the, was the affinity with napoli what was the backstory because as you said he could have gone anywhere really but what, what was the affinity and with not only with the team but the city as well it seems yeah i, I think it was a, a nice symbiosis i mean i think ultimately that if say if Juventus had offered Barcelona the fee that Napoli offered them, he might very well have ended up going to Juventus as well. Um, but the, 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 the move to Napoli was a, a meeting of minds, if you like. It, it, it was, it, he found his place in the world there. Um, I've never been, but I have heard a lot of people who have been say that it is the most South American city mm. in Europe. Supposedly, um, according to people who understand far more about linguistics and accents than I do. The Argentine, the, the Porteño accents that we speak here in Buenos Aires, or that I try to speak and that all the locals actually do speak with, um, is more similar to the Neapolitan accent than to any accent from the Spanish-speaking world, mm. because there was such a large volume of, of Italians, and in particular mm. Southern Italians, who came down here um, in the late 19th century and very early 20th century. Um, and he found that, that similar kind of energy and, and, and the similar 
affinity with a city and, and a region and a part of Italy that had historically been treated as a bit of an underclass in Italian society. You know, anybody who, who's read a tiny amount about the history of Italy and, and Italian football and, and how it all links in with, with the country's demography and stuff is aware that, that the North uh, is very much where the money is and, and where the history is and, and in many cases where the snobs are and, and, and they look down on the South. And, and that's who Maradona had always um, equated himself with anyway. So on the one hand, I think that had Juventus made made a move for him, had, I don't know, Bayern Munich or Manchester United or Liverpool or something, you know, made a world record transfer offer for him to Barcelona at that point, he would have taken it. On the other hand, of course, you're making a world record offer for a player who has been out for a very long time with a serious injury, has developed a, what turned out, obviously, maybe it wasn't as apparent at the time, but what we now know was a crippling addiction to... Mm-hmm. Um, cocaine during his time out injured who has just kicked off one of the most epic on fit on pitch fights you will ever (laughs) see a video footage of in in the final of the Copa del Rey in front of the King of Spain Um, so it's quite a big sort of thing you're like right if any of these clubs have made this offer possibly they've gone there but at the same time it's very difficult to imagine any of the clubs in the established European elite um, making that offer. Uh, and so perhaps it was always going to be a side like Napoli. Um, and, you know, there aren't too many others who had the benefit of, of mafia connections to actually be able to afford a world record transfer fee as well, let's face it, um, who, who were going to make that offer. Um, was it good fortune or, or was it a calculated thing? You know, did somebody in Napoli say, well, maybe this guy could fit in with our character and, and, and maybe his personality would go well with the city? Or did that just turn out to be how it worked out? It's, uh, we'll never know. But um, it, it's an interesting alternative history, I think. You know, what if he'd gone to X, Y, or Z other club? Yeah, well, you look back and now it's like most teams, especially Man United in what the early 90s going into play under Ferguson would have been interesting. Yeah. <laughs> under Ron Atkinson, he might have had a bit more leeway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. Ferguson, yeah, Ferguson may may not have worked from early doors. <laughs> so, so what do you think his his legacy will be? What do you think he'll be remembered for most? Football. Yeah, um, yeah it, 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 just that. It, obviously, especially in Naples, and especially here in Argentina. Um, but the the shape of the hole that he leaves in the world is is overwhelmingly a football shaped one um obviously he had his issues we we've not mentioned at all during this chat his his treatment of women um for example uh, but it's a, a a a tricky one to it's a tricky one to touch on um because it, it it's it doesn't affect how how he's touched each of our lives um, and, and, and how the vast majority of people have experienced him. And, and so at the moment, you know, there are many in Argentina who are still mourning him now, nearly a week later. And, and they're obviously not mourning that side of him. Um, they are mourning his place in their childhood or his place in their young adulthood or, you know, however it was that Diego Maradona was a part of these people's lives, whether he was the picture on the bedroom wall um, whether they met him at some point and there was some act of generosity, whether they got to see him 
in the flesh. Um, one of my very, very, very few regrets. Um, in fact, my only real regret, and it's not really a real regret at all, um, about uh, not being in touch with, with my ex's family anymore is that her mum used to live very close to Argentinos Juniors Stadium and would go and watch them. She was a Boca fan, but she would go and watch Argentinos in the late 70s and early 80s mm. so that she could see 17, 18, 19-year-old Maradona nice. in the flesh. Um, she, I only asked her about it a couple of times while, uh, while I was with her daughter. Um, and I now think, God, I wish I spoke more Spanish when she told me that. And I could have <laughs> asked her so many more questions. That would have been amazing. Um, but, you know, that's, that's the side of things that, um, that people will remember. And it, it, there's a very interesting article that I read a few days ago by an Argentine feminist movement explaining uh, why do we love Marin or why are we mourning oh no it was actually it was written for his birthday which was uh, at the end of October so it wasn't a reaction to his death it was why do we love Maradona when we're feminists um, and and it was making precisely this point that that we don't mourn what what the person did we mourn what they were to us and what Maradona was to the world um, was this just immense figure um, modern football would not be the same without him um, in the same way as modern football wouldn't be the same without Pelé or without Garincha or without Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo mm -hmm. over the last decade or, you know, without the great players of the 90s or any era. Um, everybody builds what they have while standing on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. Um, and uh, a Maradona undoubtedly is, is one of the largest of those giants, um, which is why it's such a strange feeling to be to be reflecting on the fact that he's gone especially at 60 i mean it, it's yeah, yeah. it's no age even though we all know how awfully he treated his body and even though those of us in argentina have seen due to the fact he was managing hinasia um right up until his death uh, had seen quite publicly on television just what a frail state he got into mm. over especially the last like 10 or 11 months um it, it, it's why there's still there's there's a gap there and and in argentina everybody feels what one of my colleagues made the point on twitter um it, it might be that you feel like you've lost the uncle that you never got on with and who you felt had horrific politics or, or used to say deeply you know um horrible things about certain groups of society or whatever you know it might, it might be that kind of loss but everybody feels as if they've lost a member of the family you know <laughs> for some people it'll be the the beloved father or brother or, or whatever but um everyone feels as if they've lost someone even if it's someone they didn't like um and i think that's the best way of summing it up really best player of all time as i said earlier I, it, it's not um a topic that that, that I, I spend too much time thinking about because mm. i know this isn't the answer you want you, you want to straight yes or no um but i kind of think it, who's gonna say that maradona or pele or messi are a better player than Lothar Mateus or Franz Beckenbauer, for instance, mm. when they do such a different job. Um, if I had to put together, say, an all-time 11, obviously he would be bang in there because in his position and his role, yeah, there's, there's no comparison. And also, that's a nice way of sidestepping the next question you're probably going to ask because he plays <laughs> a slightly different position and slightly different role um, from, from Lionel Messi. And so you could have both of them in there. And you can also have Pelé up front, in front of both of them. Yeah, maybe give Maradona what he wants and put him in at the five. <laughs> yeah, why not? Yeah, I've I've got a couple of Argentine football historian friends who could bring out a few names from the 1940s 
and would be horrified at that suggestion. But <laughs> yeah. um, but yeah, I mean, it's an all-time world eleven. We can stick him in there. Yeah, there you go. He gets to at least have his uh, his moment at the position that he dreamed of playing. <laughs> cool. So before we let you go, tell us a little bit more about your project. So Hand of Pod and anything else that you're working on, you've got coming up. Yeah, Hand of Pod was um, started with. Uh, it, it sort of born out of an idea that I had after I'd had, um, I, I didn't have it on my own, um, but after I decided I was going to be moving to Argentina, but before I actually did, I was in contact with a couple of other journalists out here, uh, Sebastian Garcia and Joel Richards. Um, and we had for a, a few, I mean, in my memory, it's literally just a few weeks was all it lasted. We set up a website uh, to cover Argentine football. And one of the things we did was about two or three episodes of a podcast um, and when I got out here, I still had this, this thing in my mind and, and kind of thought like the podcast felt like the only thing that was, that was unique, that was like a unique selling point, you know, USP for, for that website. And, and it was good fun. And I'd like to try and give it a go. And so after I'd been here for about six months, I'd obviously made, made a bunch of friends and, um, and, and met a bunch more uh, correspondents who, or, or people who were blogging or, or writing about Argentine football whenever they could. Um, and I suggested to one of them, well, no, you know, do you want to start a, a podcast? I'll, I, not knowing at all how to do any audio editing or any of the logistics needed, but I'll, I'll take charge of learning how to do that stuff. But I need somebody else to come on with me. And um, this was uh, Dan Colasimone, for, in case any of the uh, listeners to this uh, uh, long-term hand of pod listeners by some big coincidence, Australian Dan. Um, and he suggested roping Dan Edwards, who current listeners know as English Dan into it as well. And so we recorded, uh, first episode was recorded 10 years and two weeks ago. We just, we just um, celebrated our 10th anniversary. Um, and it's been going ever since. Australian Dan is now back in Australia, um, but I've managed to find a sufficiently large rotating cast of, of other friends who are able to join me and usually Dan as well. Um, on each episode. So we talk about it. They're mostly weekly, at least during the season. Um, and we basically, we discuss Argentine domestic football. Um, we'll, we'll talk about the top flight, uh, the men's top flight and the women's top flight. Now we've been trying to make more of an effort to cover that um, this year. Mm. And was it last year I started to, we might've started at the beginning of last year, um, which obviously has been really interesting the last year and a half because the women's top flight um, turned professional in Argentina uh just a year and a half ago um after after a lot of of work and a lot of pushing to do so from various feminist movements and, and footballers movements in the country uh we talk about the argentine cup we talk a little bit about the lower divisions not not quite so much in the men's game and very 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 little in the women's game because they're just it's so hard to follow mm. um and of course the national teams whenever there's a fifa international break we argue about who should be in the squad we look forward to what might be happening um to to what kind of results we can expect we get to go over a little bit of the highlights of the rest of the uh south american world cup qualifiers which are the most entertaining uh football competition <laughs> at least in international football in the world and we also talk regularly about the copa libertadores which is the most entertaining football competition full stop international or club level in my opinion um i realize it's not in your interest to have me saying that on your north american football podcast but um well, I, I really hope you said it earlier in the show i really hope one day we get a major league soccer team into that tournament because it's so, like, as you mentioned it's such a good tournament and uh, do they still have a mexican team down there for it or no no they don't the mexicans uh dropped out a few years ago i can't remember exactly what the issue was um but they i mean 
the thing with the Mexican league was because obviously the CONCACAF Champions League is is the the main competition for them. Yeah. The Mexican league were tending to send like their third and fourth or fifth and sixth best teams or something to the Libertadores. Um, and although a couple of them did get to finals, um, it, it was never that much of a, a priority for them. Mm. Um, but also I, I, it just added to it because South America is such a huge continent and the travel times are so enormous. I mean, I realized, you know, I'm talking to somebody who's, um, <laughs> who's based what 3000 miles from the other <laughs> side of, of your own country. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you're very much aware of what I'm talking about, but like the, so it, in 2015, River Plate got to the final of the Libertadores and played um, and won it against Tigres mm. of Monterrey. And we worked out, me and, and a couple of our, uh, the, the others on hand of pop worked out that it was equivalent to Man United or, or Chelsea or, you know, whoever, reaching the Champions League final in Europe and playing it against a team who were based in Delhi. Um, <laughs> That that's the distance, and you've also got the geographical considerations with the altitude in Bolivia and in Ecuador, especially, and the humidity around the the Caribbean coast in Colombia and Venezuela. Um, and I tend to think that probably it, it's a little bit more sensibly um, scaled now, not having the North American sides, obviously not having the Mexican sides. The the US sides have never been involved, but I I, I would tend to, to prefer keeping it to South America. For the moment, just because the travel times and the logistics would get insane if if US clubs um, became involved as well, which isn't to say that I don't think it would be wonderfully entertaining, um, and it would probably also help the the level um, of of football played in MLS because from the very few little sort of intercontinental fixtures that we see between clubs from them, um, I think that the Libertadores is generally a higher standard than than all but the very, very highest end of the, the CONCACAF Champions League. I hope I'm not going to offend anybody when I say that. No, it's, it's, um, it's accurate from what, what I watch anyway. I don't watch a tournament. I used to watch more Copa Libertadores, but it's, it's definitely uh, the, the standard so high in that tournament. Um, but yeah, it's, it's wonderful. And it's also, you know, there's always the potential for something to just go completely gonzo. Like in, in the group stage this year, we had Internacional and Gremio. Um, both drawn in the same group. They're, they're the two Brazilian giants from the city of Porto Alegre. So we had two Brazilian Clásicos. In one of them, they managed to have four people sent off each. Four red cards on each team. I think the game ended nil-nil, but it was absolutely hilarious. It was like the last five minutes and the referee just started waving cards around. It just... So there's always something, whether it's dogs on the pitch or, or you know, just craziness. If, there's, if there isn't good football then you can be guaranteed some kind of um just what, what, completely what, off the chain entertainment what, what was it two years ago it was uh the, the final got moved to spain didn't it it was uh Boca and river yeah between Boca and river yeah, yeah. um which, which was actually something that i wasn't entertained by i was deeply angered by it because even if you've accepted the premise that that river can't host the second leg themselves uh there was no need to move it outside argentina and no, even if you crazy. think there's a need to move it outside Argentina, there are loads of other stadiums. You're in South America. You're not yeah. sure what football stadiums to choose from. Poli- you know, move it to a different one, but you can't have the, the continental trophy being decided outside that continent. Yeah, I mean, that, that was one reason that in, in 2015, the final of the, of the Libertadores should have been River at home to Tigres and then Tigres away. Sorry, Tigres at home to River in the second leg. Right. Um, but when the Mexican sides were allowed in, Conmebol put in a... Um, a regulation stating that the trophy always has to be awarded in South America. 
which is why when those two teams reached the final, they said, right, although the seedings have Tigres at home in the second leg, we're reversing it so that River hosts the second leg because the trophy has to be awarded in South America. And then three years later, oh yeah, fine. Uh, we've had this big bid from Madrid. Yeah, okay, we'll yeah. take that. Lots yeah. of nice money in the coffers. And we're also selling the dignity of our... <laughs> this wonderful continental competition down the drain, but who cares about that? With with two of the most prestigious teams as well. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, the, the the one Copa Libertadores final ever that a significant number of people outside the continent actually wanted to watch. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty yeah. much. You know, I, I, I love it as a competition, but let's face it. Yeah, fo- follow the money to Spain, wherever the bag of money is going. That's, uh, that's where the final's going next. <laughs> yeah, but, but that's one other thing with South American football that, that always uh, gives us a lot to talk about on, on our podcast is that the administrators um, are certainly no better and are almost definitely a lot worse than the administrators in whatever continent you happen to be listening from, even if you're listening from North America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's that bad that, yeah, the administration is, is not a strong suit for Argentine no. football clubs. <laughs> I mean, the, the 2016 Copa America in, in, in the United States, that was the whole reason that, that the FIFA gate investigation started right. going on. And nearly all of the guys involved in that were Conmebol officials because yeah. they had decided, right, let's take, let's take the Copa America to North America. It'll be a great way of earning some money from the tournament on its 100th anniversary. It'll be a wonderful opportunity to commercialize it. What they completely ignored was the fact that suddenly all of them were going to be flying into the the one jurisdiction probably in the world where nobody was going to blink an eye at prosecuting a load of people to do with football. Whereas if they'd held it in almost any other country, it would have been like, oh, we can't do this. It will make football fans upset. But the United States was like, well, who cares about that? <laughs> we'll, we'll do it, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Da- it's down the pecking order for us. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, th- th- that kind of, um, of, of coverage always means that even if we've had a particularly boring weekend of, of action to talk about, there's always something to talk about, even if it's just off-the-pitch stuff. And it's, it's normally chaos. pretty entertaining. Yeah, there, there, there was an Argentine Football Association presidential election uh, three or four years ago, I think it was, where nobody was really sure who was going to win. The candidates, it was very, very um, bitterly fought. And it ended up, uh, the voting was tied 38-38. But 75 people have voted. (laughs) I'll I'll let you do the maths in your head. (laughs) Oh, dear. And I was going to say, that's probably something that you could talk to us for another hour about. Is like one thing that fascinates me about particularly Argentinian football is the the supporter involvement of the management and running of the club mm. and the ground. Like I, I'm sure you could talk for ages about that. That's like very, very interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it, it's it's interesting as well how when it's just the way things are done um, and when you have a country or, or a region with so many of the issues that, that Argentina and the Latin America have, uh, it, it can turn out to be not quite the ideal of a model club that a lot of us in England or in the United States maybe think it's going to be um, mm. because you end up with a lot of vested interests when everybody had, wants, wants their own opinion to be heard or wants their own slice of the pie or whatever. Right. Um, and, you know, that, that's, that's one reason as well. Another topic that we've, we've covered in the past has been the Barra Bravas, the... the mm. um, criminal gangs essentially you know it, it, it's a phrase that often gets translated into english as hooligan, hooligan gangs mm. uh, but that's not really what they are at all they're they're, they're more akin to sort of mafia groups who, yeah. yeah exactly who, who rather than identifying themselves by reference to a particular region identify themselves by reference to the club 
um, the, the, these people, you know, a, a very significant number of uh, amount of, of the drugs that are trafficked through Argentina pass through the Barra Bravas, uh, which means that a very significant amount of the drugs that end up, you know, that, that, that get sent from Colombia and end up in Spain pass through the Argentine Barra Bravas because an awful lot of that comes down through here and leaves Buenos Aires to go to Madrid and Barcelona. Um, and so when you start to scratch below the surface, there's a really a hell of a lot that stretches way beyond, you know, not just off pitch football stuff, but that stretches way beyond football to yeah. cover. Um, and if any listeners want to, to start, then good luck because there are 10 years of back episodes and I don't tend to edit them down an awful lot. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. There's a, there's a good place to start. So hand of pod, where, where are you at on social media and the web and all that kind of stuff? Uh, our blog is handofpod.wordpress.com. You can find the the podcast itself is hosted on SoundCloud, which is soundcloud.com slash handofpod, all one word. Our Twitter is handofpod, which is all one word. Um, I think that's it. Instagram? We, we don't have Instagram. We don't do... Uh, there is a Facebook page, but I never keep it up to date anymore because I don't use Facebook anymore. Yeah. Um, and yeah, if, if you... Um, if you like us, then please let me know. It's always nice to have praise. Oh, and if, if you really want to throw money at us without um, having heard any episodes, then you can find us on Patreon as well. Patreon.com slash hand of pod. Yeah, there you go. This is, this is the spot to do it. You get a few American Patreon uh, votes as well, mate. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> All right, cool, Sam. Well, well, listen, we'll let you go. It's been an amazing insight and, and really cool talking to you, mate. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, cheers, man. See ya. All right, that's full time. It's the end of today's show. I want to thank Sam again for coming on and everyone for tuning in and checking the show out. Myself and Tom will be back on Tuesday for the weekly show. Until then, be safe, be well, and we will see you all again soon. Cheers.